Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. Hi, Andrew. How are you? <laughs> the chaos continues, doesn't it? I know, but you know, it keeps things interesting. Never a boring day. No, I must say the last couple of weeks have probably produced some of the most challenging work we've ever had come through the door, hasn't it? Yeah. It's always like unique, interesting work. So it's good. Yeah. We act across a number of different industry groups and in the last I think the last three weeks in each industry group we've had something utterly novel occur, which has required us to go back to the book. So it's been it's been hard but a lot of fun. <laughs> Let's get on with today, though, because there's some pretty interesting stuff. And I, and I think the first case I want to talk about really is, I don't know, what is the name of that case? The Fair Work Ombudsman and Chat Time. Time, yeah. yeah. This is a bubble tea company. Yeah, bubble tea company. This is a case where a managing director and two, or two directors were there and they got some advice around their payroll. Yeah, so I think they've received legal advice that their employees across the businesses would be covered in the fast food world. And then the CFO in presenting the costing models for payment uh, presented two costing models. One, which would be an extra $850,000 on payroll, which included everything. So allowances. And it complied with rates, importantly, it's award compliant. Yeah, it was completely award compliant. And the other one, which they said, did minimum award entitlements would have only been two hundred fifty thousand, and, and the managing director and paying cash to people as well. So that that was part of it. That part of the I think yeah, it was, was, you know, that's that's oh, right. Yeah. It's there. It's in your notes actually. Trainees were going to be paid cash. Oh yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought you meant like as to get out of it. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was the managing director's decision to go with costing model B, and it resulted in them underpaying workers about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Yeah. And so this case really interesting because it was about the Fair Work Ombudsman saying, well. Even though he had limited knowledge, he was still involved and he should be penalised. And that's the really important part of this. This is a punishment of a managing director. And we've seen cases in the past mm. where we've seen managing director and HR managers punished with a level of knowledge. But this like is one direct of, involvement. Yeah, direct, yeah. This, is, this is a case that steps further back and says, yeah. but you have a constructive knowledge because you made a decision with the knowledge of what the choices were. You might not have had your hands on it, mm. but you knew one was award compliant and one probably wasn't. Yeah, and I want to stress that they went so far in imputing that knowledge. Like, they accepted he had no idea what the award was and he'd never read the award, nothing like that. But the fact that it mentioned award in the briefing he got and he could understand that, hey, one had casual rates and one didn't have penalty, that was enough. So gone are the days where people can say, oh, I just get a very high level of knowledge and briefing so I can't be penalised. You can see from here the courts are not afraid to read further into that. And I think for us the governance warning about that is don't think you can you can float in the water without getting wet. No. But once, once you know there's an issue, but you must drill down on it and you must ask the question, does this comply with the award? And if the advice you get is wrong from the CFO and says, yeah, it does, and it doesn't, you're fine. Yeah. But if you don't drill down, you're going to get caught. And I, and I guess look, we've got the lights on again. I've got that polished head again today. <laughs> I want you to know I don't polish my head before I come in here. It's pretty polished anyway. I understand that. So, look, really interesting case that Nina chose because I think it's a pivotal case. I think it's a movement away from the direct knowledge cases we've had in the past yeah. to one where 
if you've got enough tacit knowledge to know there could be something wrong, you must inquire. So this is, to me, the must-inquire case. You must take it the next step. Yeah, and I think really important because there are wage theft laws in effect with jail time and the federal government is looking to introduce them too. So if they're already reading that into these kinds of cases, that's not to say that they won't do that for that kind of those Yeah, no, I don't think there's well. any doubt. Let's go on to a safety case, Mansa, okay? A Mansa is a case and it's an ordinary case around an abattoir where people work in the blooding room. <laughs> it's not a nice name, is it? But it's a place where there's a lot of blood up to 20 centimetres of blood. Yeah, pretty gross. And at the end of that, employees go into a room where they wash their boots, they wash off, they cleanse themselves from that, they're able to go downstairs to another room where there's further cleaning. And Mr Mansa fell down the stairs because he had both hands full, didn't use the handrail. And what he said is, and he failed to clean his boots correctly, mm. and he alleged that it was a breach of safety in a common law claim. And the judge rejected it. Now, I think Nina and I have spoken probably too often, so you're sick of this line about minimum viable product. But this abattoir wasn't a sophisticated place, but it did have a proper cleaning regime. It did have a process. It did supervise and invigilate that process, and it did direct people to do it. And the choices he made about not cleaning his shoes, carrying things down the stairs, even though he had a limited English, and English wasn't his first language, the judge found that Manka was wholly responsible. Yeah. And I guess... And negligent. Yeah. I, I guess what we've been saying for a long time is don't wait until you have perfection to introduce something. Introduce things that deal with your highest risk straight away. <laughs> Train people. Do the very best you can because if you do, you're not going to get prosecuted in safety land. And if a common law claim comes in, you know, workers' comp that turns into a common law claim... Although it may not be premium sensitive by the time it's commenced running, can I just be really clear about this? This is a case where you could have defended premium by saying there was no negligence. So even if if Nina falls over and is not badly injured, she goes off for a couple of days, but there is an assertion of negligence, our premium will hold at a maximum level even though there is no injury, okay? If negligence is demonstrated, okay, because of the risk of a common law claim. And it's sort of front-ending insurance. Here's a case where you could have fought very hard for premium reduction on the basis of there was no negligence. So I just want people to understand this isn't just about preventing safety claims. And, yes, I understand common law claims in Victoria fall outside of the premium sensitivity period except for the initial serious injury part of it. But here's one that you could have defended premium on from day one. And can I say that applies across all jurisdictions, this capacity to show if you've got the minimum viable product, if you've got the directions, you've got the policies, you've got a good argument to reduce premium, prevent the common law claim and stop any safety prosecution. So it's not a world-changing case. It's not new precedent, but it is... Good reminder. Yeah, good, really illustrative of where we should do. Okay, performance management, Susie Chico and the Insurance Australia Group. I think everyone's heard about this case. It went viral. Did it go viral? Yeah, because I think this is why I told Tom to summarise this, because it went viral and employees started freaking out about employers' right to monitor what they do from home. Yeah. But I think when you read the case, it was perfectly reasonable. Like the employees gone out and said, oh, they were monitoring every keystroke and it was so she she went on the news and everything like that. So this is a cyber surveillance case. It's about someone working from home in the organisation having a method of cyber surveillance to show when someone started work, when they finish work, 
and what was the volume of work they were doing. And what they found out of 48 days is 47 days she started late. She didn't go any later than her time and her level of work was incredibly and low. And some days she just didn't even log on. Yeah. But, like, it didn't, they weren't monitoring that the whole time. It was like she was underperforming and then they put her on a performance improvement plan and then monitored to supplement the performance improvement plan. So it didn't go from zero to 100. But even so, I think it's clear, we need to make it clear that if you're working from home, the expectation is you are undertaking work and as part of your duties, then the employer is allowed to take reasonable steps to make sure you are compliant. I think this also comes back to this issue of saying what working from home looks like. Mm. If I'm working from home, I'm working during business hours unless somebody tells me I can work non-business hours. Does that make sense? And that's pretty important for ward employees because working outside of business hours means you have other penalties that may apply. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea that you can work from home, look after your dog, take your kid to the dentist and, and your elderly parents, it is a nonsense unless there is a specific agreement that exists with the employer and the employee. And that's really problematic for award based employees and enterprise based employees. So I, I reckon this is just a great case because it reminds of all the things that you and I talk about, which is you start work at this date, mm. you work during the day at this time, you take your breaks. Unless there is some specific agreement to the difference, and then please check your awards, please check your enterprise agreements to make sure that the flexibility you're providing doesn't land on payroll as extra costs along the way. So great case. Yeah. And I didn't know it was viral, but it is, so I can yeah, understand why it is. <laughs> okay, let's get on to the main topic for the day, okay? Yeah, interesting topic. The topic for the day really is when people use work assets like cars, like trucks, what is a workplace for the purpose of safety law and for the purpose of all other law? Now, we're not going to go to a direct case on it. There has been some case around it because this is much more of a discussion. But the case that we want to talk about is DPP in Tatura, where, which is that infamous incident where a truck driver killed four people when he was under the influence of drugs and he's under the influence of drugs because he was fatigued. The organisation he worked for understood the level of fatigue within the organisation and of him. And permitted him to, and permitted him to drive. Yeah, yeah, so what happened is the DPP eventually started off with manslaughter charges. Okay, and they withdrew those charges without explanation and then they proceeded under heavy vehicles legislation for breaches of duty. What the judge said at first instance made a number of assumptions are based that there was no evidence to support an industrial manslaughter claim, but the DPP had said nothing and the appeal court said, well, they don't have to say anything and you're not allowed to draw those assumptions. I guess what I wanted to say is the difference between a manslaughter charge and industrial manslaughter is slightly different. This is a case where industrial manslaughter, which has a lower threshold, could easily have been brought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And and I guess that's, so the case is not entirely on all fours, but when Nina and I talked about it, we said, because we've had this on a number of occasions where an employee is driving a truck or a one at you. Yeah, yeah. On the way to work. question is, was it a workplace? And we, we felt quite confident we said look both in workers compensation law and safety law it may be a work own vehicle but it's not in in the course of work however for instance if they were driving to from from there if they went home one night then went to another work site the next site so in other words they drove home on a thursday night and on friday morning they went to another workplace using the ute there's an argument because it's driving to a different workplace that it would be for the purpose of work 
And under those circumstances, the vehicle would be a workplace. And obviously, if it's driving between jobs, between, yeah. yeah, it's obviously a workplace, but most people don't understand it. And yes, road traffic legislation in all in all states and territories says, look, it's, it falls under that, but the workers' compensation insurer can jump into it. That's not the issue. We're talking about safety law. I think you do need to say, though, journey claims are ACT in Queensland. Queensland. So travelling to and from work, if you get injured in that, in those ACT in Queensland, same territories, then it is compensable. Yeah. But for the most part, it's exactly what you said. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, look, the reason I wanted to agitate is this. We, I think over the last two years, Nina and I have probably dealt with half a dozen cases of people using work-owned vehicles for private purposes Mm. and also for work. And in all cases, there were accidents, some involving other people, some single-person accidents. And I want to be clear that you need to have a policy that actually defines what is and what is not work, okay, because it's if it's incidental to work, in other words, if they use the vehicle because they need to do that for work, then I'm afraid under those circumstances, both under safety law and under workers' compensation, it's a breach. And that means things like being aware of someone's fatigue levels, having rules around drugs and alcohol. Making sure that they take sufficient breaks and, you know, that they're not, like, if you're going long-distance driving, for example, Yeah. yeah. And what we've seen repeatedly is that none of those processes sit in place. And up to date, fortunately, the ones have been driving in circumstances which are not incidental to carrying out work duties, but they very easily could have been. Mm. And so we've been able to defend each one on the basis that it's not. But when I look at all of our clients, all of whom have people who are provided with work cars, work trucks that they take home, there is a huge risk. So a truck driver who comes and parks at night after coming from the depot then goes out to start work the next morning on a run, going out to start next work, coming home on the way, because it's part of a continuous journey. It's work. It's not just a journey claim in ACT and Queensland. It is compensable under workers' comp and it is a workplace. So can you just think about this? It is a huge issue. We're going to agitate it again in the, the problem we've got that's coming up. But I want people to be very clear that things like their FBT actually reflects the truth. So an FBT, people using a vehicle, will have a percentage which is private and there'll be a percentage which is for work and you'll pay FBT on their non-work-related stuff. There needs to be a degree of alignment and a better analysis of what's going on because when WorkSafe come, they'll ask for that document. Yeah, they will, Well, which we've seen. Yep. Yeah. And I think, like, what we really want to make clear is while it is only a workplace if it is connected to work, the easiest way is just to have that clear policy and to have it very clear in your contracts. Like recently I've had situations where employees have been terminated and they've got a work vehicle and then it becomes messy in terms of what they're paid out. So just having that documentation in place will protect you under safety, workers' comp. Well, that's a classic call. example, isn't it? When someone says, look, you've got a work vehicle, you're on $155,000. Mm. So you're close to the, the high-income threshold of 166. Yeah. And you've got a work vehicle, part of which is for private purpose. Now, the private purpose part can take that amount over the high income threshold and therefore prevent an unfair dismissal claim. Big issue, okay? But more importantly, if it's part of a, a dedicated money, then it's part of a use a person enjoys, 
then it also when you're paying someone out is part of the compensation you're yeah. paying and someone. people often forget that. They yeah. think you just return the vehicle, whereas you actually have to compensate them for the value, the reduced value. Basically. And your contract can get around that if it's properly crafted, okay? So if you make that as a discretionary benefit that a person receives, which in no way forms any part of any notice or compensation at the termination of employment, you're absolutely safe. But you don't have that in your contract of employment, you're up for a bit more. All right. Well, let's go and test what we've just talked about on the problem, okay? I think a shorter problem because I did it this morning because so I'd forgotten about it. Go. Rocky was a work supervisor for Road Right, a PTY LTD, RR. His job was to oversee road works carried out by RR for and on behalf of Vic Roads and councils throughout Victoria. Rocky had three jobs on the go, part of the Ocean Road between Lawn and Apollo Bay, Western Freeway just outside Rock Bank and suburban works around Hobson's Bay Council. Rocky drove from the Western Freeway site on Wednesday, 5th of July and arrived at the Mantra at Lawn at 6.30pm. He was very tired but had dinner with an engineering company at a la Grec. No, it's a real restaurant. I go there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very creative to me. Yeah. At Aries Inlet that night. Ben from the engineering company picked him and others up to take them to dinner. Rocky drank much more than he thought. The dinner finished late, around 11.30pm. The next morning, Rocky woke up feeling a little worse for wear. He jumped in his car and took off for work near Apollo Bay. Just outside Kennet River, a fox darted across in front of him. He swerved and drove over the edge of the road, falling down a five-metre cliff into the sea below. He survived the crash. How? <laughs> was subsequently <laughs> breathalyzed by police at hospital and showed blood alcohol levels of 0.034, which meant it was likely he was over 0.05 at the time of the crash. He was certainly fatigued as he had been working 15-hour days, seven days a week for the last few months. Rocky suffered serious leg injuries requiring surgery. R had no policies or processes in place to manage driver fatigue or out-of-work conduct. Rocky was driving an R-owned ute. All right. Well, that sort of puts it squarely in place, doesn't it? So the first question is, did R breach its safety law, and if so, how? So let's go to what the duties are. So did they do everything reasonably practicable in providing a safe place of work? And was this a place? So first, was it a place of work? Yes, because he was driving to work yeah. and through an intermediary station of the Mantra Hotel and Lawn. So definitely workplace. Mm -hmm. Reasonably practical. Was there a hazard? Yes. Yes, he driving was, is a high-risk hazard. Yeah. yeah, he was affected by alcohol and he was fatigued. So there's the hazard. The risks are high. What were the controls? Well, the answer is here's a guy working roadworks and you would have thought they had an interlock or some method of testing or checking yep. or making sure they were educated about the risks of alcohol at least and it's a period of time which to get out because everyone knows the roadwork civil engineering business is a big drinking, hard-living place, okay? Fatigue is a massive issue and they, were, they must have been aware of his level of fatigue and, again, no fatigue process in place. And... When we say aware, you don't have to be aware by someone telling you. Like the fact that you've got their time records, that's enough to impute awareness. Or even the fact that you know how hard they must be working given mm. the nature of their work. So they're in deep trouble. They're certainly in trouble for breach of primary duty, okay? Oh, yeah. The issue is could fatigue and alcohol when driving a car create a risk of serious injury? Yes, it could. Were they indifferent to it? We just don't have the evidence here as to that, okay? The absence of policy puts them at risk. I wouldn't say a high risk. 
Now, if they did have evidence, evidence was led that they'd had prior accidents around fatigue or people using alcohol and driving, then I'm afraid the officers and the organisation would be a high risk of reckless endangerment. What if, on the flip side, they didn't have a policy but they had like an informal thing where you had to check in with your manager when you arrived at the hotel, Yeah, right? well, policies can be in writing or not in writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. but say they ch- he checks in with them and they say, look, I don't think you should continue driving, don't continue, and he does that, so he displays their direction and has been negligent, would that then go down that I think path, be, like you said? Yeah, I think, can I say at that stage, it would be hard to show a breach of primary duty because you've got a minimum viable product. And you've done everything. Have you done everything reasonably? No, I haven't done everything, but you have identified a, ri- a hazard. You've yeah. determined the level of risk and you've intervened to prevent that risk becoming a reality. So you, you've got a control that is in place and it's a low-level control, but it is nonetheless a control, okay? I think they would have difficulty prosecuting. I'm not saying it isn't a breach. I'm just saying they'd have difficulty because the evidence isn't good for them and WorkSafe don't prosecute unless they can win. That's true. Okay, if Rocky made a workers' compensation claim, would he be successful? Now, remember... He's probably over 0.05, and let's just say for the purpose of it that he's meant to be driving zero zero. Mm-hmm. okay? So he is a driver under the Road Safety Act, meant to be at zero zero. therefore he qualifies under Section 42, which means if he's over zero zero and before 1.2, there's a one-third reduction in his compensation between 0.12 and 0.24, two-thirds, and between 0.24, not between 0.24 and over not compensable, okay? But he oh, must be convicted. Okay. But he must be convicted. Oh, and so just, just testing is not enough. Not enough, okay? Because you can work backwards and show quite clearly he's been tested four or five hours later. So he's probably around about 0.09 when he was driving, okay? Yeah. The issue here is there's no evidence that he was convicted. So there would be no reduction in his compensation for that purpose. And it's definitely Inse- a workers' home claim because it's connected to his point yeah. when he was driving. Yeah, for work. work. So, yes, his claim would be accepted and there'd be no reduction as a result of the alcohol he'd been drinking. And his common law claim, which isn't caught by that reduction, there may be contributory negligence for, A, his choice to drive when he was fatigued, and, B, his use the effect of alcohol. So there may be a 20 or 30% reduction on his common law claim. Could you also press a reduction in premium because he was negligent? No, you can't. No, that doesn't, that doesn't touch premium. Negligence is not a part. So as far as the premium goes, you don't reduce the premium by contribution. It's either no negligence or negligence. Yeah, but if he's negligent by drinking and driving. But, but there's a demonstrated negligence by them in failing. Oh, I think so negligence or no negligence by the employer. You yeah. Got you. Right? Got it. Okay. Yep. So interesting case. Let's Come on, we've got more to go. If they sought to terminate Rocky's employment for being over 0.05 when driving a work vehicle, would Rocky have a good unfair dismissal claim? So there you go. Why would he have a good unfair dismissal claim? All right, if they sought to terminate Rocky's employment because he's over 0.05. Yeah, so if he's breached what he's... Oh, I guess that you'd go back to, like, the alcohol and drug policy. Yeah, so you'd have it. So can I just say at this stage, no alcohol and drug, no method of checking in. So we have a, would it be a valid... Dismissal, yes, it would yes, be. Valid reason. Would it be reasonable? So it goes to the reasons. No, it wouldn't because you didn't have any proper directions in place around it. You didn't have any education about the after effects. Now, if he'd been drinking when he got in the car, oh yeah, dead duck. Okay, yeah, yeah. but this is from the night before. A fatigued person who's who's not actually um, going to metabolise alcohol as quickly because he's so fatigued. He's going to have a good unfair dismissal claim. He'd, he'd win. 
on the basis of harshness, not on the fact that Reason, there's reasonable. not a reasonable. Yeah. Sorry, not on the fact that there's not a valid reason. Yeah, yeah, so valid reason, but it's not reasonable and it would be harsh. So there's two bases upon which you'd do it. How should Don proceed and what are the risks? Well, he needs to manage him for his misconduct. I don't even know who Don is. It's his manager. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it happens like that when I'm like, oh, there's too many people in the case. Okay, now. well, there's only Don and Don is his manager. So if and I think I wrote this, so I'm going to have to introduce a little bit extra. This is before the incident arose. So what should Don do as a manager to manage people who are on the road who are fatigued? Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Well, he needs to introduce a policy. <laughs> I thought you meant now. Is no, no. Him now. No, too late. He's got a broken leg. All you do is tell him to use crutches. No, I mean beforehand. <laughs> yeah, but I think you still can manage someone even if they're injured. Like, he just can't terminate him. No, okay, but let's – my intention was different. Well, he should introduce an alcohol and drug policy. He should introduce a clear remote work policy, including risk about fatigue as well. It'd have to educate. So one of the things about drugs and alcohol is this. You've actually got to tell people what are the effects of alcohol and how long it takes to get out of your system because, you know, there wouldn't be too many Friday nights that I don't go and have a drink with clients and I'm up very early in the morning going to the gym. But I know the calculation. I know what it is and I'm quite careful around it. But not many people know that. And so many people would not know they're at risk when they drive in the morning and that's why the police sit on major around Christmas time, you'll notice they're sitting on major arteries out of yeah. town at 6 in the morning because people have gone to sleep in their car and think, I'm good now, but in fact they're still heavily intoxicated. So there's a lot that Don needs to do, but the most important thing is he needs the minimum viable product. He has to have all those things, make sure that this guy who is named and now escapes me understands what the rules yeah, are. Yeah, they have to be trained in it. Competent in it, and then he's got to keep checking in on him. And he has to also enforce it because... If you've got the perfect policy and says, you know, we have zero tolerance for alcohol, yet you know everyone is engaging it, you're going to be in the exact same position. Yeah. And it's going to be win for unfair dismissal claims. So. All right. So, look, we've got some interesting stuff there. And it shows how in workplace law other bits of legislation come into effect, like the road safety legislation, mm-hmm. defines something. So we're going to be really clear about what we do accept and what is the nature of the industry we're in as to what is the level of alcohol use that can be had. But please, create policies, process and education so that people don't get hurt. Yeah. Because had the right thing occurred here, Rocky wouldn't have driven. That's the truth. Of it. Rocky wouldn't have driven. But Rocky did drive because Rocky felt he was safe. You remember his name now? I did, yeah. I don't know. I think it's because I looked down here and saw it. <laughs> I did write it at 8.30 this morning. Now, I'm going to polish my head and shit off into another room now, but thanks very much. Let's Thank show you. us some thumbs up because we really enjoyed being here today. <laughs> and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye.